0: final week of our fall. Oh, Martin, I'm sorry. I did not wait for you at all to get the podcast ready. Are we good to go? Okay. That's my fault. I'm sorry. I just got too excited because I've been talking about doing this Sunday for like five years, but let's start for how we're supposed to start. God be with you. Oh, it feels good. Can we do that one more time? That's been a long time since being in the middle. God be with you. That's good. So, as I was saying when I jumped started the whole sermon thing, we're in our final week of our fall sermon series. In all fall, we've been spending some time um, with this thing that we believe about Jesus, that Jesus doesn't just show us what God looks like, but Jesus also shows us what being human is like. Jesus is central for us here in the church because he shows us that, yes, God is loving and gracious and just, and God stands with the poor and the marginalized. But Jesus is also central for us because he shows us what it means to be human, about how to live that life that's eternal and abundant. He shows us the different postures and rhythms that we need to put on to find that life that we're looking for, a life connected with God, each other, and ourselves, a life caught up in that spirit that's making all things new. And so we've looked at different postures. It's there behind the cross. We've looked at rest and hope and generosity. We've looked at anger. A whole bunch of others. I forget. And we're going to end with one this morning. Um, And it's it's a really important one. Um, And I think it's one that a lot of churches don't practice. Um, and a lot, one a lot of churches don't encourage, which is really strange for me because if you look in the Bible, Jesus gives 307 examples why we need to practice this kind of posture. If you look throughout the Gospels, which are those books that we have about Jesus, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you would go and tally up every single question that Jesus has asked, you would reach the number 307. Someone counted. I did not spend my time doing that. You have questions about taxes, about God, about faith, poverty, worry, food, politics, money, and life. Questions about how to pray, how to have a life that's meaningful and joyful, about who is my neighbor. Questions about how do I enter into that life that's eternal and abundant, a life caught up with that spirit. And out of those 307 questions, how many does Jesus actually answer? Three, You got it. But I did this math, and Jesus answers just under 3% of those questions. Out of 307 questions. Is that math wrong? It's good? Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if it was way off. I have 12 years of education, but no math at all. Is it less than 1%? See, this is what you're here for. <laughs> this is why this is dialogical. This is why we have it in the circle, so you can correct your family members be like, no, Nick, you're wrong. But sit with that for a moment. He only answers three. Instead of giving us clear and definitive answers, 97% of the time, Jesus would keep the conversation going by asking another question or offering a parable. of the time, instead of answering the question, Jesus would engage us in curiosity, wonder, and pull us deeper into mystery. That tells us something really important, not just about faith, but also about life in general. It tells us that wonder, engagement, questioning, exploration, aren't meant to be avoided. They're not things we should be scared of. These are actually things that we're meant to embrace. It tells us that curiosity is holy. That being curious is to be faithful. It's to be alive. That to be curious is to be human. It's only by getting curious, by getting messy, by entering into these difficult tensions that we can actually grow, deepen, and expand our understanding of who we are, who is God, and what is going on in the world. So to help us get curious... We decided to do an Ask Anything Sunday. Over the past few weeks, you have submitted your questions about life, about the Bible, about God and faith, and we're going to jump into it this morning. We had about 15 questions. A lot of them, like more than half, were on exactly the same topic, which is fascinating. Um, So I split them into three topics, and we'll try to speak to them broadly but before we jump into it, uh, knowing that we need God's Spirit to guide us, would you bow your heads, please, and let us say a prayer. So God, we are here to get curious. We are here to wonder and explore. And so knowing it's not about finding the answers, knowing it's not about being right, but simply about being curious. Help us to open up our hearts, our minds, and our our ears, to hear what your spirit is saying. And may we follow you. So we turn all of this over to you, asking you to do your thing. And we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two things before we jump into it. None of these are going to be sermons. We're not meant to go anywhere. We're not going to land somewhere. Um, My job is not to tell you right answers. My job is to kind of open up and kind of expand your understanding of things. And your job is to pick all that up and see where it takes you. So this might seem a bit messy, and that's because it is. We're not landing anywhere specifically. Uh, Yeah, that's it. All right, so, Keith. By far, by far, the most, most of those questions were all about what happens next. By far, all of those questions were about heaven, hell, and the afterlife. And so there's nothing like starting off with easy questions. <laughs> so we're going to jump into these ones. So I think like 10 of the 15 questions were versions of this. And they are such, such good questions. So thank you to everyone who's asked those. But I think we can be... I think we can all be honest, right? Has anyone asked these questions before or wondered about these things? Yeah, of, of course we have. So a few things came to mind when I looked at all your questions. But I think we need to start with this. Despite how much room these questions may take up in our own consciousness, and despite how much room some churches may talk about all this stuff, Jesus surprisingly does not talk about this stuff really at all. Now, that's not to say that afterlife does not exist. It is to say that Jesus, however, does not find it very interesting. It's not his focus. It's not what he wants to talk about. What Jesus is actually concerned about is not talking about the afterlife, but talking about the before life, the life here and now. So he is mainly concerned about heaven and hell on earth. And usually whenever we hear language from Jesus about kingdom of heaven or hell, He's not talking about somewhere up there or down here. He's talking about here. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about a place we go after we die. Jesus is talking about this world restored, about what would it look like if heaven actually came down to earth and merged together. How would the world be ordered? What would our politics look like? What would our resources look like? What would our communities look like? And when Jesus talks about how my, how my father's house has many rooms, he's not talking about that we have all have a place somewhere in heaven with a certain sized room. He's talking about what would the world look like here if all the people who have been kicked out could actually be brought back in. And what would that mean if we actually realize, wow, everyone has space. Everyone can actually get fed. What would that mean for how we treat food? What would that mean for how we treat our resources? How much do we pay for taxes then if that's what Jesus is talking about? That's where Jesus goes. Or maybe you think of the place where Jesus is saying, oh, that place where there will be great weeping and gnashing of teeth. Anyone know that part of the Bible? Yeah, often that's, oh, he's talking about hell. Well, yes, but no. Uh, In Jerusalem, there was this garbage dump outside the city gates, um, and it was called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, basically the darkest, most awful, hellish place you could possibly imagine. So when Jesus would talk about hell on this earth, about a life disconnected from God, a life disconnected from other people, a life disconnected from love, he would point to the garbage dump and say, it's kind of like that. Hell is kind of like that. It's this lonely, disconnected, God-awful place that that you can end up if you don't follow these teachings, if you live a life of hate instead of love. And so 99% of the time, Jesus does not talk about the afterlife. And we need to know that because before we jump into these questions, because what happens if we suddenly think that all that Jesus talks about is about what happens after we die? We disengage, don't we? Suddenly, faith and spirituality becomes about disengagement, about trying to escape this instead of enter into all of this. Faith and spirituality suddenly become about who's in and who's out. Suddenly, if we think that everything Jesus talks about is about what happens after we die, the whole game changes, and it's a game that Jesus never wanted us to play in the first place. So as we enter into this question, I thought it was important for us to realize that we have to recognize that what Jesus is concerned about is life before death, not after. But let's go with your question. Is there an afterlife? (laughs) A few things to give you, and then I'll give you my thoughts on it. Is there a heaven and is there a hell? That was one of the questions that you got. It depends who you ask. There are whole schools of thought that would say yes. There are whole schools of thought that say no. When you're dead, you're dead. Or, uh, yes, if you're good, you go here. If you accept Jesus into your heart and pray the right prayer, you can go there. Or if you don't, you go down there. There are whole schools of thought um, and whole theological spectrums that would talk about that. And it gets difficult because the Bible, as we said, is not really helpful on that. It doesn't really give us any answers. And most of our imagery about heaven and hell, any guesses where it comes from? Milton is one. Dante is the other. Through Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno, Christianity inherited all this imagery that was then baked into the scriptures. And so suddenly our theology was was, uh, painted not by scriptures, but by Dante and Milton and, other, and by Egyptian and Greek and Syrophoenician spiritualities. But when you look into the Bible, just, there's not much there. And it really comes down to this. What kind of God do we believe in? How would you describe the kind of God that Jesus shows us? What words would you use? not rhetorical, love, what kind, compassion, action, understanding, grace, forgiveness, guidance, all those beautiful things. When we think about heaven and hell, the question that we actually have to rumble with is what kind of God do we have? And if God is all of those things, if God is the God that Jesus shows us. Can we actually fathom that kind of God having a place that we would know as hell? That's a question that you have to decide. But that's really what we're talking about, is could that kind of God do it? And if you ask me, no. I don't think so. Um, But is there a heaven? Yeah, I think so. I've come to describe it as uh, going back to be with God, God's self. Be, being pulled back into light in life itself. Because as one, as one of you wrote in your questions, we've flown rockets into space, we've, we've flown planes, and we don't see people with harps walking on clouds. And so we, we kind of know it's not like a, a place. But is there something our spirits go to? Is there something our souls go to? Yeah, I want to think so. Do we go back to be where we came from, back to be with God's Spirit? Yeah. I think that's quite a beautiful image. Because if we're, we go back to be with God, and God's with us, we never leave our loved ones. We're always still here. We can always be connected to the people that we know and love. We go back to be a part of the very thing that we came out of. But then one of you asked in your questions, yeah, but what about judgment? What do we do with the J word? And I I, I I don't know. <laughs> Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan monk, he has... I'll give you his answer, because I, I I think it's great. He goes back to, well, if God is ultimately loving and compassionate and gracious, then what does a judgment actually look like? Because it's everywhere throughout our, our tradition. We can't just dismiss it because it makes us uncomfortable. But how do we actually hold it? And Richard Rohr talks a bit about how he imagines it kind of be like you die, you go back to be with God and you get ushered into this little room and there's your favorite drinks on the counter and they say, you know, God will be with you in a moment. And so you hang out, you're feeling all right. Uh, and then God comes in and, and, and God wheels in a whiteboard and across the whiteboard are all these dots. And you're like, what is, what is, what's that? And God sits down he's like, oh, I love you so much. You're great. You're awesome. Welcome. Uh, this is your life. These are dots up here. These are all the high points of your life. And the dots down here, these are the low points of your life. Let's talk about these. What, what went on down here? What was going on there? What was going through your life? And then you can have this debriefing session. be Like, oh, I was going through this. And then you go through all the dots. And he talks about judgment being that way. Because Richard Rohr likes to see life as continually ongoing is that we don't just move into perfection. Because how boring would that be? We actually move into another stage of our life, that you can keep growing, you can keep moving. And through the judgment, God gives us this this pep talk of sorts. God gives us this encouragement to say, it's okay, You're, you're doing fine, keep working at it. Here's where you need to focus on. Keep going, keep moving, and keep becoming. So is there an afterlife? Yeah, I think so. I think the kind of God that we have, there has to be one. But the trick for us isn't just to kind of wrap our minds around that mystery. The trick for us is while we ask this question, we can never let it take our focus and attention off of, how are you living here now? What does it mean for you to bring heaven to earth? What does it mean for you to bring heaven into your life? How do you avoid hell here? How do you stop hell from happening here? So while we can certainly find evidence for something in our faith up there, that's not at all what Jesus wants us to focus on. He's more concerned with down here. Next question. Next one, please. Uh, thank you. Ha. These ones can be summed up. There's like four of them, I think. Um, God? These are all questions about what do we talk about when we talk about God? And we could spend, like, hours on this. Uh, So I'm just going to take them one by one and go from there. Let's see where we're at. What was the first one? Oh, yeah, this was a great one. What does God look like? When we picture God, what does God look like? This one came from a 14-year-old. It's a great, great... They ask the best questions, don't they? An old man. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what else do people picture God as? Like me with more hair? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would also be an answer to my prayers. That's awesome. (laughs) We need someone to Photoshop that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so because we're creating God's image, um, God must look diverse, because we all look diverse. Yeah. Vibrant. Ooh, yeah. Yeah do one more look in the mirror mirror. yeah kind of picking up off of that of you know there's that that image within us jesus saying look to your neighbor to find god yeah because ultimately god looks like everything and nothing if god is big and if god is mysterious we just have to throw as many names and descriptions as we can at god jesus would say god looks like love God looks like me, but with more hair. And then if you look throughout the tradition, um, especially in our scripture, God looks like a mother hen who dotes over her young. God looks like an eagle that soars in the sky. God looks like a fire that can never be put out. God looks like stillness and quiet. It goes on and on and on and on. The whole point being that we need to resort to poetry in order to describe God because what is involved in what does God look like? We're trying to describe the indescribable, aren't we? We're trying to name the unnameable. And Meister Eckhart, he's this, um, I think he's a monk. Is he a monk? Do you know? Uh, he's a guy. Uh, he talks about this term that he wants Christians to yeah. embody called Christian Atheists. And we're supposed to be Christian atheists because we live between the A and the T of atheist. Because once we name God, we immediately have to say, but God's not like that at all. Because God is so big and God is such a mystery. God is like a mother that nurtures us, that nourishes us, that guides us. But, but God's also not. God's also like the wind that blows and brings about change. But God's also not. God's also like a fire that burns. And so Meister Eckhart is getting, getting at this fact that God is vibrant. Uh, the Jews have a phrase calling God has a thousand faces. And that whenever we turn around, God looks differently. And we can never really name God. If you, Anyone familiar with the Eastern Orthodox tradition? Uh, they have these things called icons. Um, and it's their way of trying to get us to see God. So each image will be different and it's a way for us to see God. But within the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's this this group of people called hole worshippers and and they got quite the bad reputation because they would go through the museums and the churches and they would smash holes in all the icons because they wanted to say that God is like this but God is not like that and trying to expand our understanding of what God looks like. So what does God look like? I don't know. Look in the mirror. God's vibrant. Who knows? Uh, God's mystery. God is big. The next question that was asked was, what does the United Church think about the Trinity? (laughs) Uh, uh, I don't know. (laughs) Um, As a denomination, we affirm it. It is in our statement of faith. It's in our our creeds. We sing about it. We pray about it all the time. The Trinity is one of those things that whoever you ask, you, you'll get a really terrible answer because it's not something that we can really describe too well. Rather, I think the Trinity, as much as, it, as yes, it's like the clover, yes, it is like the sun, yes, it is like rain or water, rather, it can be in vapor form, it can be in ice form, it can be in liquid form, it can be in the sun, it can be in the rays, it can be in the heat. It can be in each petal, but the same flower. Yes, it's like all of that. But just like it's difficult to name God, there's always a good but that follows. And when we think about the Trinity, perhaps the best thing we can think about uh, is how do we experience God? And this is really what the Trinity is trying to get at. Is that when we think about God, when we think about our experiences about God, we feel like we've been created. We feel that Jesus was in God teaching us. And we feel that God is in the Spirit guiding us. So three very different interpretations and forms of God. But all coming from the same place. Um, all being different things. So the eternity is more experiential than anything. Three separate things but all taking us back into that mystery that we cannot name. And finally... Where did God come from? Again, I don't know. If we think about God as creator, if we think about God as universe, if we think about God as source, as ground of our being, uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about the thing that always was. We're talking about the originator. So where did God come from? The answer is God always was. God always is. God is that thing underneath it all. That thing that's holding it all up. A thing that always was. That permeates throughout all creation and the universe. And we can just point to that being God. And God is God because God always was. Next question. And the last two questions we had for Ask Anything Sunday had to do with how do we do what we do? They had to do with worship and they had to do with reading the Bible. And one question went as this, and again, such a really good question. How do we tell the difference between parables and others, between myth and fact, between small t truth and big t truth? Anyone ever wonder about that? When we read the Bible, how do we tell what's what? Which is really to ask, how do we hold this thing? How do we use it properly? And so, a few things throw at you. Uh, There's no trick. There's not a rule of thumb that I can give you to help you know which one is which. Uh, There's no, there's no rubric. There's no legend that you can use. Uh, Because it's not a question about. There's no trick because you need to learn what is history, what is parable, what is myth. What is fact? And eventually, as you read it, um, you begin to learn the difference. Uh, but that takes us really into the second thing. You need to do your homework. You can't just read the Bible and expect to get it. The Bible was written two to 5,000 years ago. It's a very primitive book written by very different people. And to really understand it, we need to know the culture with which it was written, the point why it was written. And so if you're curious about learning how to read the Bible, get some commentaries. Google it. Look online. Listen to podcasts. Um, that can give you some helpful tools to interpret, oh, this is, a par- this is what a parable is. Or this is a way to understand Genesis. Oh, it's not fact. Genesis is, is, is a poem. Oh, if that's how it's written, then maybe it's not science. Maybe it's something else. And you can begin to kind of go down that road. The third thing you do is hold it loosely. These things can be more than one thing. If it's a fact for you, if Noah's ark happened factually, historically for you, awesome, great. If you guys over here are like, no, it's just a myth, great, awesome. The thing that I would ask you both is, is it producing fruit? Does how you hold the Bible lead you to new life? Is it leading you into love of neighbor and love of God and love of self? If it does that, awesome. Hold it that way. It doesn't matter how you read it. It matters what you do with it. And the final thing to answer this question, ask questions. Do this. We have email addresses here at the church. You can ask us anything. Go to your library, get a podcast, wonder, be curious, rumble with it, and enter into your questions. That's the only way you'll ever get somewhere. And the last one we'll do. Someone asked, why does it matter what we sing? Why does it matter what we sing? And my answer for you is this. And this is what we learned in seminary about in our our hymnody class. And you have to say it like that because it's such a presumptuous word. (laughs) It matters what we sing because we sing what we believe. And we believe what we sing. For most of us in this room, how we learned about our faith, how we learned the vocabulary, the imagery, was not through reading the Bible. It was through the songs that we sang in church. When I hear you describe your, your faith, you don't quote scripture. You quote hymns. Because that's how you learn about who God is, what Jesus is all about. That's how you've described the feelings that you feel around that. And that's why you're tied so closely to him because that's the that's substance for it. Other churches, it's this. Other churches, it's their liturgies, the book of common prayer. That's how you learn your faith. Songs teach us language and theology, which is why it's important as a church that we sing a diversity of songs because other people wrote differently, and they had different experiences of God. And what can we learn about God by singing these hymns and these songs? How can that pull us into different ways of moving and living and having our being? And how can we increase our vocabulary that way? It matters what we sing because singing is not just about praising God. Singing is also about letting out things inside of us, right? Those songs that are, are memorable for you, They're probably not just happy songs. They're probably songs that cut deep. And so we sing songs like we did today that are about lament because we know what it's like to ask questions and be in despair. We sing songs like Imagine by John Legend because it pulls us into some really difficult questions that we rumble with. We sing a diversity of music because it pulls us into different questions, different conversations, uh, and different ideas that we need to hold. They also ask, do we have to sing? No. No, and Jesse does a really good job of this, of saying, sit and listen, let it wash over you, pay attention to the words. One of the things that I learned uh, since I've been with you, um, and I was, I was mad about this at first. I didn't tell you about it, but... <laughs> I'd be up there preaching, um, and, and one of you would just be like completely checked out. Like, your eyes would be, like, glazed over. You'd be like, ugh. And I'd, I'd take it so personally and be like, come on, I worked so hard at this. And so I'd kind of begrudgingly go out and stand in the handshaking line. And that person would come up and be like, that was the sermon I needed to hear about forgiveness. <laughs> like I didn't talk about forgiveness, I talked about prayer. And again, taking it so, like, Like, are you just making this up? Like, because you need to say something to me? Uh, But then my spiritual director, Brian, he's been here a couple times. Uh, He asked me the question of, what do you think happens when their eyes glaze over? What do you think they're doing? I'm like, they're sleeping. (laughs) And maybe, that's fine. But Brian's point was like, maybe God's doing something. Maybe something that you said or for a hymn, maybe something that you sung, touched something, went somewhere, and they went to this place of forgiveness that they need to tackle. And they spent that entire hymn, that entire sermon thinking about like, oh, I do have to do that. And that's what they had to do here this morning. And so since then, when your eyes glaze over, it's great. <laughs> because I know I know something's happening. And so when we sing our hymns, do you need to sing? No. The ask is that you be open to it, that you let those words in, that you let God speak through them, around them, underneath them, and you let it take you where you need to go. The same with our prayers, the same with our scriptures. How do we do what we do? We do it openly. We do it ready to receive what the Spirit is about to offer us and let it take us wherever So do you have to participate in worship? No, of course not. Come openly, come ready, come boldly and willingly and let God do the rest. So we had one, we had one final question. I found it this morning. That's why it's not up there. Uh, We're not going to get into it today but I'm realizing this is a conversation that we have to have. Because I'm sure a lot of you are Maybe curious about it, or when you do learn about it, you're going to be curious about it. Um, And that has to do with this minister who lives in Ontario called Greta Vosper. Um, Greta Vosper is the United Church minister who is an atheist. Um, she, She has moved throughout her life and journey from being a theist and entering into ministry and slowly moving to agnostic and kind of being a Christian atheist and kind of moving now over here to being an atheist. And she was put into review by the United Church of Canada. Uh, And just last week, the United Church said that she's okay to continue ministry as an atheist. We're not going to kick her out. We're not going to defrock her. And so the question it raises for us is, what is that about? But also, the really good question it asks us as a church with a big Jesus and a big God is, how inclusive is inclusive? How far can you draw the circle wide before it breaks? What is foundational to what it means to be the church? And so because it goes all those different places, I don't want to get into it this morning. Uh, but who would be interested in that kind of conversation? Awesome, most of you. Okay. So maybe before sabbatical happens, we'll find a, a, like an after-church kind of conversation, perhaps, maybe. We can get some coffees and throw down... And, and most importantly, like, how do you feel about that? Um, your denomination did this. What do you think about that? What does that mean for us? Um, how do we hold it? What do we do with it? Okay, so because you want to have it, we'll make it happen. Stay tuned, and we'll go from there. Can I segue? You do what you need to do. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Jesus did not come to bring us answers. Jesus came to bring us into a certain way of life. And so as we sing this next hymn, um, hold on to this curiosity thing that we put on today. Because we know where curiosity leads. Jesus tells us. It leads us into deeper life. It leads us into things like hope, joy, peace, and love. So for those of you who ask questions, for those of you who have them, good. They're good to have. Keep asking them. Email us. Go out with friends, talk about it. This is what pulls you deeper into our faith. This is what our faith is about. Is What does this mean for me? How is this connected to God? What does this have to do with faith and spirituality? Because everything matters when it comes to those things. So what's, yeah, let's stand up if you are able. And let's sing this next song in that posture. <laughs> Knowing that our questions lead us into hope, joy, peace, and love. That Jesus takes us there. Thank you for asking these questions. Uh, and may you keep rumbling and struggling well so I'm going to take-